Another pot of coffee is brewing. My third cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and most importantly, caffeine fiend. In this week's episode, I'm going to be doing a mini film review. Like last week, I was surfing the streaming services and found yet another doozy. I'm going to talk about some of my most recent mental health escapades because they're something of an adventure and I think that mental health is an important subject that I don't want to go into really seriously because I'm not a mental health expert, just a sufferer. And I have a treat for any romance readers out there in the form of an exclusive author interview. And let me just say I'm so happy to be able to bring you this. But first, it's time for another instalment of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. Well, actually, it would be had I not recently been hit with yet another annoying and exhausting case of insomnia. By the time I get to sleep, I am lucky if I get two hours before the alarm is going off, so dreams have not been coming, unfortunately or fortunately. Not sure if that's a good or a bad thing, given the dreams I've been enjoying of late, but the lack of sleep is anything but fun. I did actually consider searching through one of my diaries and I searched through the entirety of my flat trying to find one of the multitude that I've kept over the years. Unfortunately, I only found a single diary and for some strange reason that had, no joke, one entry in it and a load of pages ripped out. So either that year was a really bad one or I didn't want to remind myself of everything that occurred in it. It was 1998, so I'm trying to work out how how many how old I was. I can't Oh dear. Um, A sign of age, perhaps. That being the case, I am so sorry I couldn't entertain you with yet another weird and wonderful insight into my unconscious. I am tired, though. So with any luck, that means my dreams will be back next week. Listening back on previous episodes, I've realised I've actually found my review niche. They're either made-for-TV or barely-remembered bad films that were made for a younger or children's audience. Yes, this is nostalgia, though definitely not the good stuff. This week, I watched the Disney Channel original Smart House, so you really don't have to. Being honest, this is a film that I barely remember. Though, being completely fair, I was already an adult and in my mid-twenties when it came out, so I am not the actual target audience for the film. It starts with a paperboy delivering newspapers somewhere in suburban America. The paperboy throws a newspaper into the garden of a large house and is yelled at as a small port in the side of the building opens up and a long metallic arm comes out to collect the newspaper. If I didn't already know, then this is the point it would be really obvious. And I'm seriously, if you see this film, you will see it is so obvious that it's made for TV. The arm they're using is created with some seriously cheesy computer effects that look fake 
as all get out. Here we are introduced to the inventor, Sarah. She's played by Jessica Stern, who you may well recognise from films like Armageddon. And she was also, for the last 10 years, I suppose, in the TV series Heartland. She's in the house with her colleague, Miles, who, to me, comes across as a little lazy. And if this weren't a Disney movie, I'd say just a tad sleazy. So... We've met Sarah, we've met Miles, and we've met the smart house that is voiced by Katie Segal. We are then probably, properly, probably introduced to the Cooper family, Nick, Ben, and Angie. Ben is played by a very young Ryan Merriman, who has since gone on to star in things like The Ring 2, which I haven't seen, and Pretty Little Liars, which, again, I haven't seen. Perhaps that should be a watch at some point because I have been doing a lot of marathon viewing. For some reason that we never actually get into, Ben is absolutely obsessed with entering competitions and at this point in time he's focused on one in particular, to win the smart house. Ben is the family caretaker, the older brother. He makes dinner every day, cleans the house and makes sure that things run smoothly while his dad goes to work. We don't actually ever find out exactly what Nick does. All we ever see is that he is doing something that is connected with maintaining stock levels in a warehouse. And that's as far as it goes. But then this is a Disney Channel film and the focus is, of course, the children. The fact that the parents bring in the money is irrelevant unless their job is something really exciting as it is in Dadnapped, which I will talk about at a later date. Anyway... In a predictable move, Ben wins the house. If he, if he hadn't actually won the house, then there wouldn't be a film. And I'm not sure if that's a bad thing or not. He doesn't actually find out that he has won the house until he arrives at school. Because despite being told by his dad that he needs to get off the phone or the internet so that they can use the phone, he is logged on all night. And as this was the 90s, it was a time when you had a choice between phone calls and internet. In fact, you may well recognise this sound. It's quite funny to hear the competition organisers getting really excited about a whopping 8,000 odd entries to their competition. Especially when you consider that these days the number would probably be 10 times that. Especially if the prize is a house. In fact, it makes me recall all those competition entries for uh, free houses that are logged on places like Instagram when there's argument over what's going to happen because people have said, oh, buy a lottery ticket and you win my house. And then the house is reluctantly given away. So... Let's move on. Surprisingly, it's, to borrow a catchphrase from one of my favourite YouTube videos, super easy, barely an inconvenience for Ben to persuade his dad and sister to pack up their lives and move into this new house. Of course, the moment that Nick sees Sarah, he's infatuated, and this is actually the start of all the trouble. Ben's a shit. I can't actually say it any nicer. He is awful to his dad. He he lost his mum and because of this, he expects his dad to stay miserable and alone for the rest of his life. 
He apparently doesn't join the basketball team or spend time with his friends because he's too busy keeping the family together. So as soon as he sees that his dad is attracted to another woman, he starts to act up. And by act up, I mean he's rude to Sarah, he reprograms the house computer called Pat, and does his absolute best to make everyone know that he disapproves of his dad's growing fondness for another woman. He has temper tantrums that are more suited to a toddler than a teenager and has just generally appalling behaviour. Of course, Pat, the house, does her best to help him in his endeavour. But as things do with AI in films, during the 80s and 90s especially, things start to go very wrong. In fact, I would say that a lot of this film is inspired by the 1984 film Electric Dreams. And if you haven't seen it, do have a look and see if you can find it somewhere. It's quite good. And the soundtrack is definitely very 80s. Nick, frustrated, obviously, with issues in the house from faulty smoothie makers to the house actually banning them from leaving, mucking up some important things for his job. As I said previously, he's he's kind of like Chandler. You never know exactly what he does. He calls Sarah in and yet another excuse to see her. She comes, checks over the computer, makes sure the operating system's functioning properly. And though she finds nothing wrong, says, okay, we're going to shut her down because maybe she's overheating and giving the house a break will be a good thing. So that evening, Sarah joins the family for dinner and... Ben is attitude personified. He storms away from the table and then yells at his dad about how it was only meant to be just them. Apparently, Nick promised when his wife died that they would always be together. This is probably the biggest issue I have with the film. I don't know if it's because I'm an adult watching this or if it's because I have been where Ben and his sister are. My dad passed away when I was 11 he had cancer and he was only 34 so he was very young and my mum moved on relatively quickly with somebody else though being honest the man she moved on with was actually a an asshole he was violent he had a drug and alcohol problem he constantly cheated on her he didn't have a constant job and he was a nightmare to live with and I hated his guts and to be honest I still do. I hold a massive amount of anger towards how well he ruined my teenage years. But that said, Ben's horrible to his dad. He's had a very, very smooth few years. His dad didn't move on the minute his mum passed away. They were still living in their home. He was still treating them both normally. He hadn't immediately moved somebody else in to take their mother's place. And he even says, nobody will take your mum's place. But Ben is very intent on you said you'd never, you said you'd always love mum the most. It's quite clear he's still very young because he doesn't understand and I don't think anybody does until they're there he doesn't understand that there are so many different types of love and just because you were in love with somebody and they passed away doesn't mean you can't find somebody else to care for he's just a shit and I really would have dealt him an actual punishment rather than just comforting him because his behaviour is not excused by the fact that 
four years after his mum's died, he's still really hurt. Okay, he's hurt, we get it. But what he does is inexcusable. Of course, Pat isn't having any of it. She's been shut down, but somehow she manages, as is the way with AIs in films when they're going to be destructive, she reboots herself and having been programmed by Ben to take inspiration from 50s and 60s TV shows where the mother is the caretaker and the homemaker, she gives herself a body, that of the amazing Katie Segal. She starts to take over everything. Sarah gets kicked out of the house, everything is locked up and then the house goes just a tiny bit psycho. As with everything Disney, it all works out in the end. There isn't a complicated plan or anything incredibly clever, but they manage to convince Pat that she's no longer needed and that everything is okay. And eventually, she fades away, or rather, the physical imprint of her fades away. The film ends with the family still living in the house, which I really don't get. The house had gone psycho, destroyed everything, but they still stay there. There's no mention of their old home or anything else. And Sarah has obviously almost joined the family. And of course, Pat's still taking care of the house. So as with all Disney Channel originals, this was definitely made for children. But I'm not sure exactly what lesson it was meant to be giving. Quite often you will find that Disney Channel movies have a message in them, whether it's be responsible, care for your family, or do unto others, there's normally a message there. There is no message, no lesson is learned. Ben certainly doesn't learn anything. He makes out that he's a poor, hard-done-by, Cinderella-like character who has sacrificed everything and no one either corrects him or punishes him for his absolutely crappy behaviour. He's constantly rude, he thinks that he has the right to tell his father what to do, and he's someone I couldn't find it in me to sympathise with at all. And I mean nothing. I didn't like him as a character, which is quite a shame when you consider he is meant to be the main character in the film. His younger sister Angie is a little bit whiny but she's also relatively sensible and I have to say I find this odd but at the same time it's a consistent message that Disney films tends to have. The sister is quite often shown to be the sensible one and actually thinking about it She reminds me of a character in a show I caught one episode of this week, also on the Disney Channel, called Sydney to the Max. I was, in my defence, I was tired and I needed something that lasted about 20 minutes so I could just listen to it as I tried to sleep. Angie reminds me a little bit of Olive, the best friend. She has clearly got something on her older brother and uses that to her advantage. The perfect example of this is when Ben has all his friends and classmates over for a party that Pat organises to get him more social, having heard Nick say that he wished his son would be a little bit more outgoing. And she stays downstairs for the party with people who are at least five years older than her and no one comments on it at all. Why is she not sent to her room? Another problem I had was the way that the school bully was treated. 
it didn't sit right with me that so many people got an immense amount of enjoyment from the school bully being treated that way by a powerful computer. I know it's meant to be funny and the kids are all laughing as he gets his comeuppance, but even so, he never actually physically harmed Ben. He just demanded homework with menaces. And in my feeling, surely that could have been dealt with in another way, in a better way. I'm guessing that this bully never read the homework assignments he handed in, so why couldn't Ben have written something in the assignment instead of getting Pat to do them that incriminated him? That would have surely made far more sense, but then this is a Disney film and it's meant to be showing that the hero gets everything the way he needs it to be. Nick, right, the dad. I'm not sure what to say about him. He's the adult. He just agrees with no negotiation or barely any negotiation to move from his house into a new one and there's barely a thought given to it. Now you've heard my summary and my opinions, what exactly can I say about Disney Channel's original Smart House? As I've already mentioned several times, I really am not the target audience for this. It was the first time I've seen it and will definitely be the last. It had as much charm for me personally as a film starring a group of Tom Cruise clones or perhaps a romance novel written by a serial killer. Not that I would equate the two as the same thing. Wow, that's really negative. I'm sorry. But then, as with a large number of the films on Disney+, Plus, not all of them, just a large number, this is not a film that has been made for me. So, have you seen it? Are you going to see it? If so, what did you think? I really would love to know because I couldn't find one redeeming factor in the entire thing. Before I get to the meat and potatoes of this week's episode, an exclusive interview, I know I can't believe it either. I've been thinking about it all week and struggled so hard with questions and everything else, but I really hope you're going to enjoy it. I am going to give you a a small and short update on my mental health. As I've mentioned before, the reason that you didn't get an an entertaining insight into my subconscious through a very odd dream is due to the fact I have been experiencing insomnia for the last week. Thanks to the fact I've been unable to sleep, I have watched the last 50 episodes of The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, the first 40 episodes of The Sweet Life on Deck, and most of the first season of Big Hero 6, the cartoon series. I love Baymax. I don't think it matters that I'm an adult. I am most definitely in touch with my inner child. In fact, to hear some people say I've never actually really grown up. The lack of sleep has meant, unfortunately, that I have been much more irritable than I would like. I am so conscious of every single word that comes out of my mouth that I'm incredibly relieved we're all currently working from home and I have control over when I speak with people. I hate that I am so angry. I'm not as a rule, an angry person. I'm like everybody else. I have that anger inside me, but I have more control over it. But until my sleeping pattern is restored and I'm no longer tossing and turning every single night, and I'm 
serious here. I literally lie in bed and beg, please just let me sleep. And it reaches three or four o'clock in the morning when I can see that the clock is ticking down to the alarm going off. And I am struggling so hard. I actually start crying. It's unlikely to get better until my sleep pattern is restored and then I may have a bit more control over how I think and the emotions that I visibly display. The lack of sleep isn't only affecting my temper, it's also affecting my medication. I have previously mentioned that there are quite a few unpleasant symptoms to anxiety that aren't often talked about. Everyone knows that feeling like you can't breathe and your chest hurts is a very common one. The panic of not knowing whether it's a heart or anxiety attack just makes things worse. But no one really talks about the stomach aches, the headaches, the nausea, the loss of appetite, the physical exhaustion. I know that everyone with anxiety and depression experiences different symptoms, just as the causes and emotions are different. And the ones I've just listed are only a few of mine. With any luck, next week, whatever has set off my current issues will have faded, or at least it will have eased enough that I'm able to move forward and start getting things back on track again. I hate the fact that my current low has really lasted so much longer than it normally does, but I just have to push through it and hope that the last few weeks are it and the few positive things I have going on actually are enough to get me through it. At the beginning of this episode, I promised you an all-exclusive interview with a brand new author who has just released her second novel. It came out today, the 5th of October, as I record this, and her name is January James. I had the opportunity to ask her a lot of questions about her writing, including letting me know more about the hero of her latest book, He Turns, Zach. My intention for Zach was that he would be quite an arrogant, um, to a point, unlikable character. And he just didn't come out that way. And maybe he did to an extent in my head, but actually when people started to read the story and I and I started to get reviews and feedback um it became clear that actually Zach was more likable I think than Marcus was which was never my intention (laughs) but it's funny how characters kind of take on a life of their own and clearly Zach was never truly meant to be an an arrogant chauvinistic a horrible you know privileged bloke he was he actually had a heart and um and there was another story kind of waiting to be written for him um so it was good actually because I wasn't really sure when I wrote book one what book two was going to be about so um when Zach kind of became who he did and I was getting all of the feedback about him being what you know we really want to hear what his story is now and we want him to get his happy ever after and that really solidified for me just what the second book should be all about I think he was always going to be in it but um it it wasn't until I had the feedback from a class at that I that it really crystallized that that needed to be front and center in book two um 
so book two uh just to give you a very brief summary and i haven't had to do this before i've i've, I've only ever done this like writing it down and you can go back time. over something you've written down and make changes and you can't do that on a podcast um so he turned is so it is the follow-on story of zach um zach morgan cheney is um the ceo of skilled which is a startup business that we see in a class act is very successful he sold it to LinkedIn for a huge amount of money, um, but he stayed on as CEO. Um, he unfortunately, in a class act, had his heart broken um, by the main protagonist in that story. Um, and you don't really see the fallout of that in a class act. So it was always something that I, I thought I needed to go back to. As it happened, it formed, um, I guess, the the source of his character throughout he turned um in that he was we see him in the beginning as quite a broken a broken man as as a result of um that relationship going wrong um or not turning out the way he wanted it to um we also see uh jess who is the female protagonist in the story she's um quite a young fresh vp of marketing who's worked really hard dedicated um most of her working life to um creating an incredible career history and even though it's in a short space of time she's only 25 when we meet her in this book um and she's dedicated her life to um helping underprivileged people and supporting different parts of the community she's she's really got a heart of gold in terms of wanting to be um ethically moral i i guess um and wanting to kind of save the world in her own way um but she joins skilled because skilled is actually a really inspiring business um it's quite a, a fresh take on the recruitment market. Um, and she wants to learn from Zach, she wants to learn from Skilled, and then ultimately that experience will take her forward to, to be able to um, help another business um, operate in a more ethical way. Um, what she's not bargaining for though, is the new Zach that we see who is completely broken. And as you can see, this is me rambling now, this is not a... <laughs> <laughs> this is not a brief summary is, at all. <laughs> but these are your characters and you know them better than anybody. I mean, as a reader, I can have my own interpretation of them and so can anyone else. But you're the one who knows in depth their motivations and how they ended up where they were. I mean, I was, as you said, we didn't see the fallout from what happened in Class Act because it mm. focused intently on Marcus and Lottie and their relationship. Mm. Zach was kind of a victim of their good luck in a way yeah my interpretation yeah. is he was he was the unintentional victim because yeah I don't think she realized quite how much he cared for her no no and I think again with Lottie um I think she was very much blinded by the, the feelings that she had for Marcus it was a very intense relationship on her part and and I think she meant well uh, when she dated Zach um, and he was 
I think she felt as though she'd kind of got over Marcus to an extent when she started to date Zach, but when she saw him again, and I'm quite, I don't know whether to give too much away because of I wouldn't give too much away, but <laughs> give hints so that people want to read it. I mean, yeah. I, I was really lucky in that I read a class act and then not that much afterwards, I got to read He Turned because mm. I think had I left, had there been a longer gap for me, I'd have gone back and read the first one again before I read this one. And it would have been even longer before I found out what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a very yeah. reader. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think there are very many. That, no, I that don't think so. The people who've been reading my book so far read it so fast. You know, they're done in 24 hours and less sometimes. And I'm like, God, goodness me, you know, I, it takes me much longer to read a book. So it's like four days to read a book. But um, yeah, I, hats off to, to all those readers who speed read. <laughs> I think it's more a case of they desperately want to find out what happens rather than things I know that I quite often will read and read and read until I finished even if I start reading at half past 11 at night if it's three o'clock in the morning when I finish the book then it's three o'clock in the morning when I finish and that's it as far as I'm concerned and I will read I think I've been known to read four or five books in a week if not more if I'm on holiday or if I'm working and I do think that if the book is that enthralling and the storyline is that intense, you get absorbed in it and you do want to find out what comes next. Yeah. And maybe not so much speed reading as how does it end? Does he get the happy ever after? Yeah. And actually it's, it is a compliment. I think when people get through them that quickly, I think it's, it's, um, it's less of a compliment. I think if people struggle to get through or they kind of, you know, inch their way through it and find it a bit tough going I would prefer that my readers are able to just pick it up and then get completely absorbed and want to kind of find out what happens as you say that's that's preferable (laughs) have you ever had any feedback from someone that's made you think about something that you've written and think well questioning it maybe or looked at it and gone no I was definitely right they're wrong (laughs) Yeah, I have. Um, and actually, it's funny. I, I When I first wrote a class act, I actually wrote it because my first book that I ever re- wrote um, was a YA novel. And it was the first book that I'd ever completed. And it was a, a complete load of drivel, really. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> it, got one of those. <laughs> it. <laughs> it was the first time I'd written a full length novel. Um, and it, and I was quite wedded to it and I ended up having to write a class act or my motivation for writing a class act came from me being almost a little bit paralyzed in terms of going back to my YA novel. I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't touch it um, to edit it because I'd put so much time and effort into writing um, what turned out to be, I think, 125,000 words, which is epic. (laughs) Um, High novel. So um, I wrote a class act without really connecting to it a great deal. And I, and I found it much easier that way to, to write it. Um, and 
and I did the same a little bit with He Turned. I think by, by consciously sort of taking a step back and detaching myself from it, it's much easier to kind of lay it all down and then I can go back and edit it and get a little bit more um, engrossed in a storyline and, and detail oriented. And so I think for that reason, I've kind of honed the ability to take a step back and not necessarily see a class act and he turned in the same way that I saw this YA novel, which was, you know, I was kind of really glued to it and it was an embodiment of my creative um, essence. <laughs> Um, it was more, I think, I've been able to take a step back and, and really see some of the critique for what it is, which is, I think, for the most part, well meant. Um, and also, I just find it invaluable. And I think through self-publishing, I've been able to develop that direct relationship with readers and really understand what it is that makes a novel easier to read or harder to read. Um, what they find enticing about a character or off-putting about a character. I've had some criticism um, about Marcus's character, um, about him not being very easy to empathise with or, or understand. Some people have felt that there wasn't as much depth to Marcus as there was to Lottie, for example. Um, that actually had been done on purpose. I didn't really want there to be a lot of depth to Marcus. He was always meant to be somewhat of a mysterious um, closed character but one of the um, criticisms I guess um, I've had from a, of a class act is that I head hop a lot and I know I head hop um, in, in, that in that story um, and it's a, it's a habit I have picked up from some of my favourite authors actually uh, Louise Bagshaw being one she and she's a self-proclaimed head, head hopper um, but I think because I find it fair not easy but I, I feel I find myself just as able to write in a first person as I am in the third person yeah that it's probably easier for the readers if I focus on writing in the first person there's less less likelihood that I'm going to slip back into that head hopping. So ultimately, it, it just makes it a little bit easier for readers to, to get through the novels. So, so that kind of criticism I found really useful. And it's a, I think it's been an important part of the self-publishing journey. Um, so going from publishing a, uh, a debut novel, but while it's been, you know, people have enjoyed reading it, there have been some issues that I've been able to pick up on and apply to he turn to make it an easier to read and ultimately hopefully um, more entertaining novel so that's what I was gonna my next question was going to be how did you adapt what you'd observed and the process with a class act into he turned did you find the process did you find the entire process from start to finish including promotion and everything else far simpler the second time yeah, no, I found it simpler in the sense that I'd already done, I've, d I've done a lot of it already uh, one time around. So, for example, publishing to um, the different retailers, uh, it's a big learning curve. They're all very different and some of them have quirks. Um, <laughs> I've heard that funnily <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to mention any brand names, but I have heard that that is the case. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it makes it easy when you've done it the first time around to then 
upload and you know get it all sorted the second time around equally with editing software and working with editors and working with um, cover designers you know the relationships have already been developed and the expectations are set so that's all fine um, what I did differently for He Turned was open up to an ARC team, um, which I hadn't done with a class act. Um, and that's been, that's been amazing. I've absolutely been blown away, actually, by the support that people have given me um, for, for launching He Turned. It's, it's, yeah, bonkers. I, I'm absolutely, you know, indebted to, to my ARC team for their support over the last few weeks so that's been easier I think the process of writing it I actually wrote he turned in about eight weeks whereas a class act took me two years so <laughs> and I think I think that's because I've got I've found my rhythm and I know what I know what my tone of voice is I know what my style is and I know what's important to me when I'm structuring a chapter and a scene for example and so I was able to kind of slot back into it pretty quickly and because I've already done some work to establish the characters and have an understanding of their backstory it was easier to kind of slip back into it so in terms of writing the story it felt a lot simpler I don't know if that will be the case with book three I can already see that that's going to be quite a complex novel so I don't know if I'll be able to write it in such a short space of time <laughs> Well, on the website, you mentioned that you have managed to get into a flow state when writing. Is that, do you think that that has helped you to speed the process along a bit more with eight weeks, which is incredible? It takes me that long to write an article occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being serious. It really does. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I've, in my previous jobs, I've done a lot of content writing as well. And I think if the subject doesn't absorb you, that much it can take such a long time and it's a real effort to to get that work done but I think because I kind of have the story in my head and I kind of know how the characters behave it is possible for me to sit and and become really absorbed really quickly and just just write and write and write and I think it's become harder now that I've got a two-year-old because I do have to work in chunks of time and it's not always easy to just write on the spot sometimes you need that time to kind of settle into a rhythm or or get into a headspace and if that if those blocks of time are as small as kind of half an hour or an hour sometimes it's impossible but I think it's something I've got better at being able to kind of make the most of those windows of opportunity that I get so I tend to use the time actually if I do have a large chunk of time I'll spend that time just rewriting and just get everything that I possibly can down. And then if I have a smaller window, I can go back at a later date and, and really sort of work out what I've written and edit it or move it to a different part of the book or, you know, do some, do some sort of more detailed things to that scene. So I've kind of found a way to make it work. Copy and paste is very useful. <laughs> Incredibly useful. <laughs> Do you have a specific routine when you write though? You say that when you have the longer periods of time, do you have a, a certain place that you like to write that you find easier to concentrate in? Do you, I, I know 
coffee is my big thing and I will at least have one cup of coffee before I start doing something and make sure I've got another one that's really, really hot when I'm actually working on whatever I'm working on. So is there something that you do that is so specific to your writing routine? Not at the moment because I think, no, actually I've never had anything that, uh, like a regular routine, actually. (laughs) being completely honest that's not a bad thing if you don't need that routine to write then that's really lucky do you know I'd love it I'd love to have a routine (laughs) but um I think just the nature of my life is that I, I just I have to just work around whatever else is going on when I first started a class act I was working full time and writing in the evenings and weekends and then I finished it when I was on maternity leave. So I was still sort of typing away with a, you know, six week old baby in my arms, like trying to finish it. Um, and then he turned, I began writing that when we were put into lockdown. Nursery was closed. So, you know, I was having to kind of juggle childcare. But I worked out a, a little system with my husband where we would just sort of have working shifts. So one of us would look after a little girl and then the other one would be able to get some work done. And I guess in terms of actually sitting down at a writing desk, oh my goodness, I would love to be able to do that. But we live in the smallest cottage known to mankind <laughs> in East Sussex and I'm right now I'm sat on my bed <laughs> well, I'm, um, I'm recording in my bedroom because my office is now completely work filled I've got mm. a computer two screens the printer there's no way I could use it for doing anything that I enjoy anymore that sounds really bad if my boss is listening I didn't say that <laughs> yeah I think yeah if I had if if there wasn't a two-year-old downstairs I'd be on the I'd be at the um, dining room table we've just bought a new one or it's actually a, a vintage one um, and we've, we've been doing a little bit of upcycling around the house so it's actually a really nice place to be the dining room but um, it's a little bit noisy down there at the moment but the one thing that I have consistently is a cup of coffee so I know you said you like coffee like that's yeah it's but it has to be decaf made with oat milk you did say you said earlier you weren't sure um, when you first started planning things that Zach was going to be the focus of he turned. So who out of all of the characters that were in a class act were the potential mm-hmm. leads for this book? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I think it was always I think it was always going to be Zach, the main cat well the um, who would play the biggest part from a class act, but I think in my head I was thinking there would be a completely new character that sort of took a more of a primary character role in He Turned and it wasn't really until I got the feedback about Zach that I thought actually no he needs to be the primary lead character Um, and actually I'd done quite a bit of um, thinking around his background anyway I knew he had a bad relationship with his father I knew that there were certain expectations from his family that he would go into the family business and that he'd kind of booked that trend so I'd already done a little bit of groundwork into his past so it made sense really to just explore that a little bit more. Where did you get the inspiration? I mean his past is really traumatic and you don't get to see quite how horrible it is until you read the book 
especially when he meets yeah. the rest of his family. Where did you get the inspiration for that? I mean, is it from, I'm not going to say personal experience, but is it from people, other people's <laughs> stories that they've told you or things that you've read in the paper and things? I know that people quite often will use old press stories as inspiration yeah. and things. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I always pick up bits and pieces of inspiration from people I know from uh, my my family is nothing like Zach's family. <laughs> You're not rich. No, <laughs> I know, but um, all the things that come with that money, with as yeah. far as concerned. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I think it just I pick it up from all over. I've I've always been interested in um, narcissistic personality disorder. Um, just I don't really know where I first read about it, and I, I know that with the rise of social media, it's kind of narcissism has really come to the fore, but in a different shape and form. I think whether there is actually a serious um, actual condition called narcissistic personality disorder, which does lead people to behave in such a way that if you're a close family member, the impact on that person can be really, really severe and life altering so it's a, it's a topic I've been interested in and kind of tried to do it justice I suppose in that storyline in He Turned because it is uh, it is a potential trigger for, for some people. It is a um, very difficult subject I think anything mental health related is yeah. a really it is a triggering subject and I hate using that word trigger but it is one of those subjects that people can really struggle with Either they yeah. know somebody who's been through it or they are themselves experiencing it or have done. Yeah. yeah. Mental health in general is one of those things, I think. Yeah. So I wanted to do, I wanted to cover it in as fair a way as I could or, or sensitive, I guess, not fair, sensitive. It is becoming a more prominent or more recognised um, disorder. So I would expect that some of my readers might have touched it at some point whether it was through a, a friend's experience or you know a distant relative or how or even a partner I mean the, there are lots of cases whereby um, you can be in a relationship with somebody and, and and someone has that disorder and it can have a huge impact on the other person so yeah I was really quite keen to cover it sensitively and and not dramatize it too much so hopefully I've achieved that I was going to say you made these particular characters quite unlikable, but not to the point where you'd wish massive harm on them, which is, I'm, no. which I'm guessing, That's good. our intention. <laughs> that, yeah. was, that, was that the hardest thing to write, though, in this book? Or was there, was there a specific thing that you can easily go, no, that particular scene was painful? Not because painful as in heart heartbreaking painful, but it was really difficult to get the words out properly. I did cry when I wrote some of um, <laughs> Zach's family scenes. <laughs> um, I mean, was I that more it, because you were moved by them or because they were hard to get at, hard to write? Because I was moved by them. Um, and I think actually it was when... And this is always the case. I don't, well, I don't know if it is for, for many other people, but certainly for me, you know, when you're really upset about something yes. and, then, and then somebody kind of comes along and shows you some love, it makes you even more upset. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had a lockdown. 
<laughs> that was my, my first hug after lockdown. I hadn't seen anyone since February and my niece <laughs> gave me a hug about, it must have been about five weeks ago. And it was like my first human contact. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I remember being like years and years ago, I was on a train um, in London and um, I think I just had an argument with my boyfriend at the time and I was, I, I started crying. I think I'd had a really hard day at work as well. And I just started sort of sniveling away on the train. It was a packed train as well. And I was sort of sniveling away. I didn't have a tissue. And this lovely lady sitting opposite me leaned over with a tissue and I just burst into floods of tears. I was so embarrassed. But it was just that somebody shows you a bit of kindness when you're upset and it just, yeah. it, it kind of, un, you know, breaks down the 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 walls and it all comes out and I think that was kind of what happened when I was writing the part about when Zach met up with Grace and he met Grace's daughter oh that was and, so sweet and they were kind of trying to make him feel better you know he, there, there was a real um back and forth with Zach in terms of I think he he cared for his family and he wasn't so self-absorbed that he consciously did this but there were moments when it became about him and that was one of those moments he'd gone to meet Grace and his and her daughter, who he hadn't seen before. And yet some, you know, somehow the conversation was turned onto him. It was sad because it kind of brought it home to him just what the family had done and the impact that it had on, you know, the relationships between the siblings. And it was that that made me cry. It was the kindness that she, that Grace was showing to Zach, who was broken and couldn't do anything to change what had happened. And that's what I found really, really sad. I found that hard to write. Because there was, there were elements of, I, I when I read it, it, there were certain things that came across to me as he felt he'd failed them, even though he was helpless as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's always been a little bit of, I think on the surface, in the beginning, you wouldn't really think this, but it was always my intention that Zach was quite self-aware and possibly quite self-critical. And I think he has always felt as though he could have done more when he probably couldn't. That um, came, I think that came across when he was talking about the relationship with Lottie and he didn't understand what he had done wrong. So it was, yeah. he'd done something wrong rather than it just wasn't meant to be. Yeah, I'm glad that sort of stood out a bit because I did want him to come across as quite a fragile character, actually, because in a class act, he just sort of storm in a bit, you know, egotistical. And that was exactly what I wanted him to do. Um, whereas actually the reality is that his past has damaged him quite substantially and and he is actually quite fragile and has jumped to, d to this conclusion that it's something that he's done wrong when Lottie leaves him, when actually it's not, it's got nothing to do with him at all. Yeah, he's, there's, he's so affected by everything around him that in, from a reader's perspective, it came across very much as though he was saying, it's my fault, I, did, I must have done something because otherwise we'd have still been together because... I loved her so much. There wasn't anything yeah. I wouldn't be. And I think um, hopefully I've captured there what, you know, a lot of people, you know, if you're on the receiving end of a breakup and you're really kind of thinking, I didn't, and you know, it's, it's where that's, that line, it's not you, it's me comes from, you know, it's not the person who's being broken up with often that is 
you know the cause of the breakup it's it's just a change in feeling that the other person has if that makes sense yeah so it's you know I wanted to kind of capture that like you know even Zach who's loaded and you know stunningly handsome and successful can still be on the receiving end of a breakup and think that it's his you know yeah his fault but he can't understand why I definitely did get that from the book and I'm gonna make it a little bit lighter and ask you a really really (laughs) out of the sort of off the wall question so you've been given you have been the book has been sold to a film studio and you are <laughs> you can cast no, yeah this is the hard one <laughs> one member of the cast you're only allowed to pick one character and your chosen actor or actress for that role so who would you choose to cast and what which actor would you choose to play the role and why <laughs> so i'm actually going to steal the suggestion from one of my street team <laughs> because I have been thinking about this and I'm absolutely rubbish with names of kind of up and coming actors and actresses I'm really not down with the kids at all and if I was left to my own devices I would say Zach and it would be Tom Cruise like a younger version of Tom Cruise because that's really who I've kind of based him on but one of my street team came up with a lovely um, suggestion earlier and I don't even know how to, how to pronounce the name Henry Cavill Cavell steal that suggestion and say that I would I would cast Henry of back yeah <laughs> <laughs> so that made it easy for you did you ask the question or did somebody just say i think this person no, is perfect <laughs> yeah no this just suggested it on in the um facebook group i thought yeah that's that's because i i don't really pay that much attention to um you know these up-and-coming actors um but he was he's actually really hot so <laughs> curly hair Uh, (laughs) (laughs) we're not going to argue with that one do you actually have um headcanon for your characters do you have a a mood board where you can sort of pick out the the features of just people you see in magazines newspapers and things to give you a better idea of the characteristics of the individual casts of your books no it's all in my head weirdly (laughs) I have Pinterest. <laughs> I have used Pinterest for so for the for the first novel that I wrote, the YA one, which will never see the light of day. I why won't it ever see the light of day? Because it was just it was just oh, it's all over the place. Tenses are all over the place. The plot was all over the place. There's no depth to the characters. I will go back to it and completely rewrite it, but as it stands now, it will it will never see the light of day. <laughs> um, but when I was compiling that, because there were a number of different worlds to be built, I did use Pinterest to help me do that. Um, and I, and I, I like doing mini edits, mini mood boards with um, Canva. Um, yes. But I generally do those after the fact. So once I've kind of developed the characters and I've written, written their stories, I will then kind of play around with pictures. But yeah, I kind of... Yeah, I don't really have a picture of them in my head other than a very basic, um, you know, tall black hair, stunning blue eyes. Or, you know, if it's Jess, for example, she's got messy hair, big bun on her head, you know, hair out of control. Um, but genuinely just quite a together 
person I don't really have anybody that I model them on that I know for example what kind of um, information do you give to the people who design your covers so they can get the right mood for the book hmm. I'm trying to remember because the the Anjani who um designs my covers she I first briefed her for a class act um and she sent me a briefing form that was about five pages long. So I had to give her a load of information. Um, and I can't remember now what that was. I think it was things like, you know, what is the setting of the novel of London? What are the characteristics of the protagonist? Well, I had two protagonists in a class act, Lottie and, and Marcus, I suppose. But I'm also conscious of what readers of that particular genre are looking for. I wanted to have the novel be quite clear from the cover what you could expect so I wanted a hot guy on the cover basically um, but it had to be <laughs> a suit. has to be hot guy in a suit <laughs> yeah and you know what I really feel for all those cover designers around the world getting the exact same brief <laughs> that's, that's the thing. I mean it's a, very, it's a very popular genre but you reading mm-hmm. your bio you actually worked in the city so it's a, a world that you're somewhat familiar with yeah so I've worked I don't without giving away my age I've spent about 20 years working in communication-based roles in not not the city as such uh, but in big for big companies and I did work for a startup once which I didn't particularly enjoy but I could see how it could be enjoyable for somebody like Lottie so yeah I've had I've had quite a lot of experience in that environment and actually you know found it to be really fast-paced and adrenaline fueled and really quite interesting I don't I don't really feel actually as though I've managed to convey just how exciting it can be to work in that kind of environment because I have focused on quite finance heavy businesses whereas book three will be uh, more around the industry of retail which I think is possibly more relatable to most people. In that case, um, I think I might should. know which character it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think, when you were mentioning book three, I'm thinking, who's going to be in it? Now you've mentioned retail, I think I might know. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, I've been thinking, it's, it's probably going to bring a lot more of the old characters in. So it's going to be a multi-point of view book. So there will be Eliza and Jay. I think yeah. in in the book, but there'll also be other characters from a, both a class act and he turned coming together a little bit in in book three. I mean, <laughs> one of the things that I will say is, when reading this, you did get the sort of view that you had experience working in that kind of world, rather than making a guess. Yeah. And I've read; I think everybody has at some point picked up a book and gone, "Well, they clearly have never worked there." <laughs> Because yeah yeah opposition and they've made it sound like it's on a tv program instead of yeah having experience it there so I'm guessing I'm only guessing that you brought a lot of what you have experienced working yeah. and you did into the books yes I did um and it's funny because they always say don't they write about what you know and I didn't really consciously think what do I know or let me write about that it was more that I think over you know a career of 20 years it's hard to it's hard not to find think of possible stories um in that environment and you know I saw quite a lot of scandal um and you know I 
<laughs> I worked in PR in the 90s in London, you know, there, there was, I saw lots of drugs flying around. Oh, and, yes, I imagine you know, so. <laughs> going on and, you know, it was, um, it was not the 90s, what am I talking about? Was, that would put me like 10 years older, like 2000 onwards. <laughs> hang on now I feel really old <laughs> <laughs> because I was working in the 90s <laughs> now I feel about 900 <laughs> oh, no. it really was no. I, I started work in 1992 <laughs> oh no I think I, I started working in PR in 99 in London so yeah so it was it's got all millennium bug yeah yeah exactly and just before all the dot-com crashes and yeah. and all of that so there was a bit of a heyday going on when I first started working in PR but I did over the years then so actually I'm looking forward to writing a, a story where we hear more about Eliza's role in PR because that's an area that I really do know a lot about marketing I've kind of I have worked in marketing I know the discipline I know some of you know the latest advances and kind of strategies and principles and that kind of thing and I do recognize that there's a lot of detail goes into my descriptions when I'm talking about the the professional environment and that's not for everybody but I've also similarly had some really good feedback that it's helped people immerse themselves a bit more and it's also taught some people something new about an industry they didn't really know a lot about so yeah I I guess I do write from right from what I know because it make it makes me feel more confident about what I'm writing and it and it flows quite easily as well and as I say working in that environment did give me quite a lot of fodder <laughs> for some of the storylines I recognize that I went to that party <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so that's been, that's a, been that's the thing that I think that if there weren't, if the detail wasn't there, there wouldn't be so much depth to the story. I like, mm. I, as a reader, I love detail because I like to be able to get involved and actually sink into the story rather than all of a sudden be jerked out of it because something doesn't sit right. And yeah. I, I mean, I yeah. work in marketing, so. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I am quite familiar with it. I think (laughs) that's the thing. Not everybody can say, I understand this business, this world, or this type of business. But when you do, if there is something in there and you think, well, that's no, that's rubbish, that would never happen, you do get pulled out of it. And the fact that you've got such a strong base in that world and you've chosen to write about it rather than ignore all of that and just focus only on the story. That, I mean, you've, yeah. got, you've got the two layers there, which makes it far more interesting for any reader who likes that kind of level of information. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I think what is healthy to realise as an author is that you're not everybody is going to like your book, but some people will really like you know the approach that I take and you know my style of writing and and it's those people that you know I'm on a mission to find now as a as a new author yeah I appreciate not it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea (laughs) if everybody liked the same thing life would be incredibly boring and exactly like a book (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) did you find it really difficult to actually start writing the first the first book in the series after writing your 
YA that's never going to see the light of day? Or did you just suddenly, <laughs> I need to write something because I've written this and I've proved I can do it? Because you said that you wrote that, um, you wrote a class act because you'd had that element of, yeah. oh, I can do it and now I don't want to touch that anymore. But was yeah. that transition between YA and quite clearly adult novels? Because it's not, it's not for YA. I suppose you could call it new adult, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I don't um, understand the definitions anymore. <laughs> no, me neither. No, I don't either. I think it's new adult. But then, but it's not erotica either. No, um, it's, it's got it's sexy. Be honest, there are. So, I mean, yeah. you've got a very, very sex, uh, sexual lead in both books. Yeah, they're not there. I suppose in a way you could call them alpha males. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think at first a little bit. Yeah, I think because you write at a slightly different level. I don't know if that's the right term, really, because I don't want to imply that the YA audience is, for example, dumbed down because they're not at all. I think they're, I think that audience is very demanding and very particular about what they read and, and they deserve that respect. And I think romance, similarly, there's a certain expectation of what a story will deliver. For example, the happy ever after, it's, you know, critical. And the arc of the, the protagonists, you know, it has to kind of deliver on a certain promise and I think be having respect for that is really important so I think finding my voice it took me a while to find my voice and a class act went through a few different iterations but I think what helped me and this is something that I do now with with all of the books that I'm planning is I'll start with the blurb kind of the back page bit and then I'll build that out into a synopsis and I'll build the synopsis out into a chapter breakdown so I can see very clearly from the outset what needs to happen in every scene to lead on to the next and then I can start building in peaks into each scene and different arcs and maybe some cliffhangers at the end of different scenes and chapters so I can so that makes it easier for me to kind of get straight into what needs to be done because I've kind of planned out the skeleton of it beforehand and that's what I did with class act really for the first time the first the first book that I wrote was really just a complete brain dump it was just vomit really (laughs) word vomit Um, (laughs) whereas a class act I did kind of I planned out the bones of it first and it made it much easier and and I I find as well that it gives me motivation if I know what is going to happen down the line and I'm excited by that then it gives me much more motivation to write the rest of the book. So sometimes, depending on what mood I'm in, I'll go in and write a scene that I'm particularly excited about. And then it gives me, it gives me a bit more motivation to then write what I call the bridge scenes, the ones that kind of connect one scene with another scene, but fundamentally might not be that interesting, but you have to find a way to uplift them because those are the scenes where you need to really keep the reader. So yeah I found it really helpful to kind of plan it out that way and then I can just dip in and write if I'm feeling like I need some help to 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 get into my writing that day then I'll go into something that actually is going to interest me a bit more and then go back to the bridge scenes when I've got a little bit more time or motivation (laughs) that's not a bad that's have you ever found that when you've written something that you've come across you suddenly think well actually no I don't want this here anymore this needs to 
be totally different because I want that to happen so you've changed yeah and um yeah there's a saying that people call it killing their babies um I don't generally I've never I not to refer to it like that but um, I'm generally not pressured I'm quite happy to call entire pieces from the books and I think that comes actually from working for so long in that corporate environment where you have to be prepared to to pivot and change direction and and not be too precious about the work that you might have been doing for several months for it to then become completely not not useful or needed anymore you have to change tack and, and work on something else and I think having that experience in you know a work environment has kind of helped me become less precious when I do need to just call something to make the story ultimately stronger in the long in the long run so yeah I'm quite happy to do that (laughs) do you delete it or do you put it in another folder somewhere just in case it might come in handy some at some other point yeah I do but I very quickly fall out of love with stuff that I've written that I know doesn't work any longer so I do keep it I don't know where I've got kind of (laughs) word documents on my desktop my my husband has you know nearly has a breakdown every time he sees my desktop he's like how can you how can you not file things (laughs) but yeah I've got like reams and reams of documents of things that I have just sort of I might need that later but I very quickly become committed to my new train of thought in that respect so I don't tend to go back and reuse things that's that's quite good I suppose that's healthy though if you've discarded it it's because it wasn't necessary I know that I've kept stuff and said maybe it might be useful for something else I don't have a messy desktop because I can't cope with it but I do have (laughs) I do have a folder that I use to place all the stuff that I'm not using for work especially and I will go up, go through it and I'll think, oh, maybe I'll use that for another thing. And I've got items that have been sitting in there for a year and a half, two years, and I've never opened them. Yeah. I can't help yeah. it. <laughs> I think I'm a virtual hoarder. E-hoarder. Everybody has their own way of doing things. So... Mm. Your second book was released today, as in Monday, though this is going to be yes. released on Tuesday. What's next? You said book three. But you're also talking about others being planned. So have you got your schedule planned with release dates and everything else? Or is it just go with the flow and see where you get to? So book three, I would like to, if I can't get it out before the end of this year, then early next year, because then I'd like to be able to sell the first three as a box set in the first quarter of next year. So I guess I'm hoping that I can get it out for pre-order by the end of November, but we'll see. As I say, this is quite a complex novel in terms of the multiple points of view that I'm going to be incorporating. And I think that the plot is probably going to be a bit more complex as well. So we'll see. I don't want to promise anything, but that's my aim. But simultaneously, I am going to also go back to the YA novel that I've been thinking a lot about. So (laughs) I'll be um, doing some work on that as well. But I'm going to try and possibly go down the traditional publishing route with that. We'll see. I'll see if obviously anybody does like it. But I yeah in terms of names that I use I mean obviously January James is a pen name as you now know if I was to publish a book in a different genre I think to avoid kind of 
muddying the water, I would probably publish that under a different name. So even if I went down the self-publishing route, I'd probably publish it under a different name. Well, there are a lot um, of authors that do that, aren't there? That have, yeah. Even if they're writing within different genres of romance, they have multiple names. Yeah. Well, Picard used to do that as well. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the thought of kind of building a community for a second pen name does slightly terrify me. But, <laughs> but it's, we'll, we'll see how, we'll see what happens. My priority, I think, has to be book three of the Square Mile series, because I don't think it's fair to keep people waiting for too long. <laughs> shaking your head (laughs) I'm saying no please don't make me wait because I'm very very curious as soon as I read the last one it was like the last pages it was who's going to be the next book who's going to be the next book now you said who's going to be the next book it's like right okay well when am I going to get it but it's very you missed the apparently September is big publishing month as in almost every author has a book coming out in September so was it yeah I noticed how crowded it became something I noticed I follow a lot of publishing and author publishers and authors on Twitter on another account and I noticed they were all saying why can't they spread things out a bit more September is horrifically crowded certain dates Mm. are awful and you released just into October so you missed all of that horrific oh good grief how many books are people bringing out this month was that intentional, or was it purely by accident that you managed to do that do you know what I was was wondering whether or not I should say this but I'm actually guided a lot by astrology (laughs) I'm an Aquarian (laughs) Piscean cusper so (laughs) oh wow okay wow so I'm I'm Pisces with um, a very Aquarius heavy birth chart, like five planets in Aquarius. So I do follow, I do I don't take it literally. So some of you know you can read star signs and horoscopes and stuff in magazines, and and it can it's it's very hard to kind of say that you know that's actually going to happen. I think I. I do take a more holistic view when I when I look at astrology, which is kind of I understand a little bit about it. I know what it can mean if a certain planet moves into a certain house or, you know, within a certain area of your own personal chart. So I do have a little bit of background knowledge that kind of helps a little bit. And it doesn't necessarily predict the future. It's I don't really want to, you know, go too much into it, but it does kind of give you a sense of what what the environment is ripe for at that moment in time, according to the placements of the planet in different houses, etc. I knew that September was going to be quite a difficult month because of various planetary activities, and and that October with the you know we're now past a, a big uh, blue moon actually Aries full moon. Um, there's going to be a short window of time before you know we start getting retrogrades and stuff that is actually quite an optimal time to be launching something but it's a difficult time of year and what with the election going on in the states as well and covid and I think just it's it's a weird time at the moment so I don't know if any time would have been a a perfect time to launch a book Um, everybody's at home so yeah it's yeah. not as though they're going out. Well, I mean, they are, but they've got restricted amount of time to go out. And then, of course, we had the announcement about all those cinemas closing and all these other things that have yeah. happened in the last couple of days. So now's the optimal time for people to be reading. Yeah. I'm always yeah. trying to encourage people, read. Please read a book. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> not me being, I do a film review as well. So <laughs> it's a film review and then it's all about books because I'm sort of entertainment. I love any form of entertainment that means I don't have to leave my house. Yeah. <laughs> I've always enjoyed reading. So having these books has been fantastic because it's introduced me to a new author and I, I'm always looking for a new author, but you never know what to look for. Yeah. So yeah. So if you were to be presenting this or you were asked in a newspaper interview to give a summary of why people should read the square mile series not just he turned but both of them what would you say so if if you're interested in reading a story that is grounded in i suppose a professional high-powered adrenaline-fueled professional backdrop but you want and you want intelligent characters who are confident and empowered and ambitious and hot Um, (laughs) and you want tension and you want a bit of steam then I think these books would be for you I think there are a lot of office romances out there and I think I do put a different spin on them and I think that very much comes from the detail that you get around the professional environment in which they work and to what extent that environment is almost a character in itself I think that's what kind of marks out the square mile books from others. So I, without wanting to disrespect anybody else's work, I would like, I would kind of, <laughs> and that's really not my intention. Because I know yours. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I would say it's steam with substance. That's kind of how I would en- encapsulate the square mile series. Well, that's the thing. And also, as you said, no drippy heroin. That's one thing that I find so frustrating. Mm. I, I like a I like a woman who knows what she wants and isn't really really wishy washy and it's so yeah. difficult to find them because you have a strong alpha male you automatically assume that the female is going to be subservient almost yeah ways, I, I think I'm actually incapable of writing that person I just I don't have it in me I, it, <laughs> it wouldn't motivate me to write that you know my female characters do have to be they do have to be feisty and ambitious and be able to stand up for themselves I don't think that 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 women like that are represented enough in fiction so yeah I think there's definitely a place for them and actually interestingly a lot of the feedback that I get on a class act and to an extent he turned although not many people have had a chance to review that yet it's uh it's only been out to the arc team but is that they they're liking having a strong female character um which is which is good because that's what I write <laughs> that's the thing I think quite often you'll either get a strong female character and a weak male or you'll get a strong mm. male character and a weak female and having the two strong personalities battle against each other you get really good chemistry yeah and really good healthy tension definitely or unhealthy depending on what you are yeah <laughs> I mean, I've loved both of these books. I am looking forward to the third one. So do you have inspirations when it comes to authors or did you sort of look at this and go, Um, I'm I'm making my own path, but I love these authors? I think, 
I've mentioned her a few times. Louise Bagshaw has been a massive inspiration. And who else? I'm really enjoying at the moment reading a lot of independent authors. Um, LJ Shen, I really like. Yeah, I just read uh, Playing With Fire, her new, her new one. Really nice, easy read, but some nice tension. It's a bit of a high school bully romance. but So it's not the kind of thing that I write at all, but I love, I love the way... It's almost YA language that she uses. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it astounds me, really, because I don't think she's of that age herself. Not so that she's old, but <laughs> she just gets that dialogue just perfect. So I really admire, I really admire her. I try to read a lot uh, across different genres, actually, just so that I'm not, I'm not kind of getting stale in my style. And I think it's possible to get ideas from completely different sources yeah. as well. So... I find that really useful. So what advice would you offer to anybody who is thinking of starting writing and going into self-publishing? Okay, so probably two different questions. I think for someone wanting to get into writing, as everybody says, just write. Read a lot and write a lot. And if if you're looking for advice, and I think people approach novel writing differently, and the way I approach it is to start with the USP, the unique selling point, and build it out gradually as I sort of talked through you know building it then out into a synopsis and then into a chapter breakdown that is what helps me to write a full-length novel and to finish it importantly but I think when it comes to self-publishing I've I've gained a huge amount of support and resource from joining the alliance of independent authors Ali for short so I would I'd highly recommend if anybody's seriously thinking about going into self-publishing to to become a member because their blog and their podcasts and their Facebook community are hugely helpful because there's a lot of technical stuff to get your head around if you're self-publishing, unless you're going down the KU route, which I think is then fairly straightforward. But, you know, if you're setting up your own mailing list and using BookFunnel, for example, as a distribution tool, there's a, there's a lot of different technologies to get your head around. And so it could be really helpful having a resource like Ali to kind of help you muddle through those things. And they're the sort of things that you don't necessarily find out about unless you're speaking with someone who's already doing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think self-published authors are very supportive of each other. And in what could be quite an isolating profession, it's nice to know that you you can go to people for support and, and they're happy to share their techniques and, and and their experiences and actually you know it's it's a it's a huge market and so there doesn't necessarily have to be an element of competition you know I don't want to help you because you're trying to reach the same people I'm trying to reach because everybody writes so differently and so yeah they're just a really supportive community so I've I've really enjoyed the process of self-publishing yeah it's it's fired me up in a way that I wasn't expecting it to well that's good and also obviously it's given you the push to go back to your YA as well yeah <laughs> now you've done these two and they your your babies are kind of out on their own in a way you've got yeah, yeah. possibly to go back to the YA that started it all yeah exactly <laughs> that's the, that's the plan Ooh. eventually <laughs> it's hard I think in any creative pursuit to get any that support factor I think with 
anything I've, I've found the podcasting community has been again incredibly supportive and I don't think without yeah. I don't think that I'd have actually managed anything without it yeah I didn't yeah. know where I was going and I, it sounds like that's the same with Ali and self-publishing yeah definitely yeah I think it helps because by kind of making those connections you can see what's possible as well and how far you've got to go but having that support every step of the way makes it feel much more achievable it's nice to know that people can self-publish and after a period of time make a living from it and that's quite encouraging because ultimately that's what I'd like to do but I, I appreciate it can take a few years to get there but you have to start don't you and YA is very very popular as well so yeah <laughs> as is romance <laughs> yeah, I, that's the thing. I mean romance has such a bad rap when it comes to writing publishing and everything else it's looked down upon by so many and mm. I find it quite offensive in a way as somebody I've read all the classics I had to mm. but I enjoy I want to read something I enjoy now and I enjoy the books that just take me on a, a journey rather than I have to think about them too much because yeah. they're well written but you need to analyze them whereas the enjoyable books are the ones you read and the story flows for me yeah <laughs> yeah and I think it's like it's like you know different foods that you enjoy you know sometimes you want to go out and have a nice long leisurely meal and other days you just want to like nip to mcdonald's <laughs> sometimes i'm not comparing you know, romance comparing your book to mcdonald's, McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what i mean <laughs> it's like sometimes you do want a novel that you that is going to last you you know a holiday for example and sometimes you want a novel that you need a quick fix and you and you just want something that's nice and easy and and engrossing to read so I think yeah there certainly for me I like different books at different times yeah um but I tend to get through romance novels and romance novels tend to stay with me longer than other books do they tend to kind of get a grip I think you become longer. more attached to the characters too yeah why yeah. which is why in a way I suppose Pride and Prejudice sticks with so many people because had that been published now, it would have been a romance novel. Yeah, completely. With Mansell, Lindsay, and any other author that writes a modern day romance, that's where it would have been. Yeah, yeah, completely. Exactly. Unfair judgment. Such unfair judgment. <laughs> So where can people find you? So my website, uh, which I do keep up to date, is uh, januaryjanesauthor.com. And I've just relaunched the or rebranded the blog, actually, and I've called it Chasing Alphas. So speaking of alpha males, and I am sharing from tomorrow, actually, I'll be sharing a new blog series about what different places that have inspired certain scenes. And I'll also be sharing some bonus content on there as well. So I'm already working on a couple of bits from, from Marcus cool. that will be shared in the next few weeks. So yeah, keep an eye on the blog. And I'm also, I'm probably better on Instagram than I am on Facebook. So you can find me on Instagram at the January James. Yeah, those are probably the two key places where I 
<laughs> it's been fantastic to speak with you and you've heard it here Thank first. You. you've heard it here first there are going to be exclusive pieces of content on the blog <laughs> yes. i will be posting the link in the actual description below the podcast information so if you have any questions send them january's way on her blog or via instagram and i can attest she is definitely there <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, thank you so oh. much and i appreciate no, thank it. you quite well. and also this was your first time you've done this yes so, <laughs> having said that it was the first time i've interviewed as well so. <laughs> <laughs> we did a very good job <laughs> okay so that's about it for this week i just want to take this opportunity to again thank january james for guesting on the show you can find the link to her website and her book on amazon in the notes and i hope you've discovered a book that you'll want to read a film that you probably won't want to watch and maybe got to know a little bit more about me in the process i'll be back next week with more reviews and unusual stories I'm pretty active over on social media, so if you want to follow me to find out what I've been up to between recordings or just want to come over and say hi, I promise I don't bite. You can find me at need underscore three underscore mugs on Twitter and not before coffee podcast on Facebook. I post in both locations regularly about books I've been reading, episode planning and a lot of other podcast and non-podcast related things. Well, I need another cup of coffee because my mouth has gone really dry. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. And until next time, this is me saying farewell.